0: in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Earlier this year, I attended the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association conference at UC Davis, where I had the privilege of listening to a presentation by the author Paul Chat Smith. During the discussion, Smith made the somewhat sardonic observation that his people, Comanche, were perhaps one of the five most famous American Indian nations in the United States. Of course, it's ridiculous, if not downright crude, to rank such things, but the remark did illuminate an important point about America's colonial consciousness, the people and Indian nations who get canonized, mostly through stereotypes, and those who are forgotten. The Lumbee people, or Tuscarora as some prefer, are, for most non-Native Americans at least, among the latter. Despite the fact that with 50,000 enrolled members, the Lumbees are the largest tribe east of the Mississippi, few outside their immediate region in Robeson County, North Carolina, know much about them. The continued presence of Indian people in the U.S. South doesn't jive with the common story we're told about the region after removal. Race was about white and black, of course, the former seeking to maintain their dictatorship over the latter. Well, Melinda Maynor Lowry, a Lumbee herself and assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, explodes this myth in her powerful new book, Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South, Race, Identity, and the Making of a Nation. Not only were Indians a dynamic part of the complicated threefold racial system in Jim Crow, North Carolina, but their community's continuity in the face of, and occasionally in partnership with, white supremacy tells us a lot about identity formation in the South. But that's not all this book explores. From the persistent struggle of the Lumbees to gain federal recognition to their complicated relationship with anthropologists, politicians, and New Deal reformers, Dr. Lowry's book is a nuanced and poignant corrective to history's simplification. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Dr. Lowry, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm glad you could be with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Of course. Well, today we're discussing your new book, Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South, Race, Identity, and the Making of a Nation. It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press and part of their very exciting joint publishing series, First Peoples, New Directions in Indigenous Studies. Um, And to call this book simply a book in Native or Indigenous Studies is to ignore the tremendous contribution this work makes to a fuller understanding of Southern history in the Jim Crow era. Most poignantly, you've complicated what's often quite literally a black and white story, but also provided a rich introduction for readers for myself who weren't familiar with um, the unique history of Indian peoples in North Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. But first, I want to just begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, um, I am a member of the Lumbee tribe uh, in North Carolina. I was born in Robinson County, but raised in Durham. Um, I'm an assistant professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill, where I've been since 2009. Um, I work, of course, in Lumbee history, but also have great interest in Southern history and 20th century history. I teach in all those different areas. Um, and segregation is sort of a particularly interesting, I guess, topic for me, and particularly interesting historical time period, because it's not as simple as it was made out to be <laughs> there's a lot of myths about how um there's a lot of myths upholding it and i think studying indian history is a good way to kind of deconstruct those myths and get at how the system itself was um was maintained Now, um, if
0: i may i, I want to read the opening paragraph of your book because i think it's um Incredibly poetic, and I think much of this, this book is. It's, it's obviously scholarly, rigorous, and very serious, but it writes in a in a reads in a very beautiful way. Um, you, you open the book; the story unfolds in the low lying swamps of the lazy, rippling black water. The swamps have names like Deep Branch, Burnt Swamp, and Turkey Branch. Fingers of the water from the swamps drain into a river, which is known as Drowning Creek, the Lumber River, or simply the Lumbee. The river follows in its own path to the ocean, flowing through lands now known as North Carolina and South Carolina. These waters have nurtured a people in a place that became known as the South in the United States, names that name later after the identity marked people as Indians. Um, now, originally, immediately after reading this very gorgeous opening paragraph, it became clear to me this would be, um, in a sense, a very intimate story for you. And I'm just curious what the process was like in writing this book that's so close uh, to your own experience
1: yeah well it was really fun i think that's one of the things that um i like to tell people who are thinking about entering graduate school um or you know doing further study in in history is that it's got to be fun you've got to want to get up every day and do it and one of the things that kept me motivated in the in the through the writing and research process was constantly uncovering new stuff about things i thought i understood um and so I was learning family history that I didn't know before. I was learning, of course, you know, a lot of tribal history that we had. We had, as a community, some kind of received wisdom about, or a kind of collective sense of what had happened. But then, when I when you go back and look at the documents, you realize, oh, here's a different version, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not that one version is correct and the other is not correct, but they're kind of products of different historic, different forces, um, and they're they're Historical documents and collective memory are are two different kinds of processes. And so being a member of the community, I think, um, and having a personal attachment to the story kind of highlighted that difference quite starkly for me, and in some ways contributed to, um, you know, why I wrote that paragraph the way I, I wrote it. I didn't want anyone to assume that um, I assumed, as a historian, what an Indian was, and so I thought it was important to start with something that um, indicated the kind of process of identity construction that Lumbees went through that Americans in general go through um, and that is sort of the substance of identity itself, Uh, you know, it's always a process and a contest, and you have to become known as something just as, you know, the land becomes reforms, changes over time, and I think that was – so that was one of the fundamental um, operating premises I had as I was writing the book. And it became – it wasn't difficult to adopt because I was living in Robinson County where I was writing most of it. Um, and that's just a cultural, geographic, economic environment that's constantly shifting. Mm-hmm. But it's also at the same time extremely culturally conservative. Um, and really holds on to tradition in a very firm way. So, um, you know, it's not an urban, anonymous kind of environment. It's a place where people know each other, people knew me because they knew my family, not because they knew me. Um, and so we adopt, we're able to adopt this familiarity with each other as Lumbees um, because of the way our community has maintained its identity over time. But, again, it's not without change and shifting and build, building on layers, building on other layers of identity. Um, so I guess, it, you know, coming up with the kind of way I, the definition of identity that I talk about in the book was a result of being a member of the community and um, watching this change firsthand and maybe having some insight into, you know, being indian being american being southern all at the same time and not you know not concerned about there being a conflict between those three identities
0: now w- one of the the most striking um dynamics of the book is is this the fact that this community is constantly being um it's either uh, uh, taking on new names or being assigned names but there may also maintain a, a certain continuity in indian identity um And I wanted to just uh, flesh out some of that, one of the main analytical concepts of this book is this negotiation and conversation about identity between what you term insiders and outsiders. And I was hoping you can just tell us a little bit what you mean by that and how that conversation has played out.
1: Yeah, when I refer to the insiders, I basically mean that people in Robeson County um, who have identified themselves as Indian through Centuries. Um, So since, you know, prior to the formation of the United States, there's been an Indian community coalescing in Robinson County. And the people that I refer to as the insiders in the book are the ones who are connected to that community through kinship. Most of them have never lived outside of the county. You know, most of them have never known or thought of any other identity or existence than being Indian. Um, And the outsiders are folks who are kind of looking looking in, in a sense, and trying to filter what they see in the Indian community through their own understandings of race and racial hierarchies in particular, um, through class hierarchies in a different way, and particularly through the sort of standards and, and philosophies of federal Indian policy. Um, and so those outsiders, they're not all non-Indians. Some of them are other Indians. Um, and the insiders are hardly a homogenous group. They all don't think about things the same way. They don't agree on political strategies. Um, they are not all related to each other, for example. But they're all kind of bonded through attachment to place and an important understanding of kinship. Um, and so, in the book, I talk about Lumbee identity as a as a layering process. That we have these fundamental layers of attachment to kinship and place. That everyone understands, if you're a member of the Lumbee community, we just we take it for granted, really, mm-hmm. that you can you recite your genealogy going back at least five generations. I mean, most people can just do that without even hardly thinking about it. Um, other people can do it for a lot longer than five generations, but that's how we know we're connected to one another. Um, when we take our attachment to the place, you know, is very important as well. Because um, it was our our lifeblood, our source of sustenance, um, but it also has a great deal of spiritual significance because of our our ancestors are buried there, you know, and it holds this pull for people um, who, f- throughout their lives, you know, change, uh, move, alter their identities, but Robinson County is sort of always there. As the homeland, so like for example, my parents had me born in Robinson County, even though they lived in Durham at the time. And the point of that was so you know I would have this um, undeniable connection to where my people are from. And that discussion of identity is what takes place among insiders. Mm. Uh, that that conversation about, about identity, about people, place, is the dominant is the dominant discussion between insiders, outsiders tend to discuss Lumbee identity as a kind of collection of factors that are more abstract, at least from the Lumbee perspective, you know, uh, race and purity of blood are, are some of those factors, ideas about Indian culture and what constitutes a real culture or what constitutes an authentic culture, um, ideas about, uh, Government and what constitutes legitimate political authority; these are all things that uh, people are filtering the Lumby experience through, and what comes out on the other side of the filter is rarely a, a, a kind of true representation of how insiders see those relations. Um, so, identity then becomes this conversation between what outsiders have filtered and what insiders know. And insiders are constantly kind of through this story anyway, are constantly sort of adjusting their political strategies according to what they're hearing from outsiders um about what will work to help them achieve their political goals, especially in relation to federal recognition so that's sort of where where the idea of the conversation comes from is that you know identity is certainly not fixed, and we can't measure identity from a fixed point in time or a fixed point in culture. But it's a constantly evolving process that is shaped by outsiders' ideas as well as by insiders' ideas. Um, one of the things I wanted to do with the book is, is let people know that, that our tribal names um, for insiders are comparatively insig- insignificant to the family names and the place names that we hold on to, which are very stable over time. Those tribal names have been negotiated with outsiders. Um, whereas the family names, the place names have not been negotiated with outsiders. Those are things that we've held on to for hundreds of years and are very stable. And so they acquire, they have much more importance to Lumbee people than, or I should say to Indian people in Robinson County. Not all of us identify ourselves as Lumbee, mm-hmm. but to Indian people in Robinson County, you know, they those tribal, those family names and place names have a whole lot more importance than whatever tribal name the state or federal government um, has, you know, decided suits us.
0: Did you ever feel any um, reservations about, uh, you know, because most of the, uh, the readership is obviously going to be among the outsiders, um, mm-hmm. and yet so much of the discussion is a discussion that has taken place um, inside the community. Was there ever any tension in your mind about, about um, I guess, not so much broadcasting, but discussing inside discussions um, to a larger audience
1: Well, not so much I felt like it, it was a gap that needed to be addressed in the historical and anthropological literature about Lumbies. So much of that literature has spoken this is me with my scholar hat on right mm-hmm. you know so much of that literature has spoken to directly to outsiders perceptions that I thought it was time to give a kind of insider view. You know, not that I represent that view completely, or not that my voice does, but that there's enough in the historical record to demonstrate what Indians themselves thought about things. And that was what I wanted to kind of highlight. Not that, again, that I represented the view, or that there was one view, but look, here's what's in the historical record about how Indians... Talk about perceive themselves, and look how different it is from how outsiders have perceived us over time. And because that discussion of inside um, this inside discourse had never really, you know, taken its place in the literature, I felt like you know it was just it was time to add that to the discussion mm-hmm. because you're never really going to understand Lumbee history, I don't think, unless you get something about what Lumbees themselves think about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, You write um, that this book concerns um, four layers of Native American identity, people, race, tribe, and nation. How do you go about parsing out these concepts, which I think for a lot of people are often spoken of interchangeably, as if they all um, mean the same thing?
1: Yeah. Um, well, that was it. Was kind of a light bulb moment when I when it occurred to me that they don't all mean the same thing, even though we do use them interchangeably. Um, and I could see a kind of chronological development in the sources that I was dealing with, where people would begin to use these words um, in particular ways. And there's you know it's, there's overlap. There's not you know say 1934 Indians begin to talk about themselves as a tribe. I mean that's there's no kind of concrete moment. At which this shift in language or new layer of identity gets articulated, but you see this kind of gradual um, shift towards talking in certain strategic ways that again will mostly appeal to outsiders and their ideas about Indian identity, so the fundamental layer uh, is or the fundamental you know marker um, is Indians as a people. And that's the one that has, you know, been maintained so consistently for several hundred years. Um, then after the Civil War, you know, white supremacy acquires a different kind of urgency in terms of understanding what property is, understanding how people are going to fit in to a world without slavery, and race acquires a different kind of urgency Um in, during that time period. So accordingly, you know, people talking about Lumbees begin to talk about Indians as a race, um, and in, in our case as a mixed race, mixed between white and Native. Um, and that's where this origin theory about the Lost Colony emerges, I think quite strategically and specifically in in coordination with... Um, with a, a broader discussion about how whites are going to maintain supremacy in the South. They're able to um, kind of manipulate our history in a way and describe us as a race instead of as a people and legitimate our, their own agendas, their own racial agendas by claiming our kind of kinship with, with whites and therefore with white supremacy. Um, so, you know, all of that was too coincident for me to ignore That Lumbees begin talking about themselves in racial terms, and you have white supremacists, you know, dealing with race in a different way in the United States and in the South, and so that's kind of where that layer, where I began to see that layer, was in the basically in the 1880s, 1890s coming through, and then in the 1930s, the federal government um, begins to get more heavily involved in Lumbee affairs. The federal government had been involved in Lumbee affairs since. The 19 teens, when our when one of our first bills for recognition um, was proposed before Congress, but um, the and you know the, the reports that were done consistently said, well, these folks are Indians. You know, there's no doubt that they descend from various historic tribes, but they don't have a treaty relationship, and so they don't sort of fit the criteria of people we should provide assistance to. Um, now, that treaty relationship, lack of a treaty relationship is not our fault, you know. <laughs> um, and it might have been a, a, a secret advantage that the United States never signed a treaty with us. But well, nevertheless...
0: Exactly like the treaties that if you did have a treaty, it would be particularly well-respected by the U.S., given the general history of the U.S. treaty relationship.
1: Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, the way that the recognition process went was that you were a legitimate Indian if you had a treaty. Um what these folks are saying from the federal government is that these are legitimate Indians, but they don't have a treaty. Mm. So we are not going to provide them with any services otherwise due to legitimate Indians. It's very circular, the federal policy logic um, around around recognition and around non-recognized tribes in general. But it was in the 1930s that this concept of tribe, I think, really kind of begins to, emerge as one of the layers of our identity because that's when we come into close and regular contact with the federal government in the attempt to get recognition first through congress and then through the bureau of indian affairs under the indian reorganization act and the bureau of indian affairs has very concrete ideas about what a tribe is and applies those ideas certainly at that time applied those ideas uniformly to different indian groups regardless of how different the groups might be Um, so we were you know, trying – some of our leadership was trying to fit that definition of what an Indian tribe was according to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it becomes a very important point of political contestation within our group um, about you know, what should this federal relationship look like. And then this idea of a nation kind of comes in, um, I think, as, as self-determination becomes more of, more of the policy uh, thrust of the later part of the 20th century, nation is still a kind of contested idea. In the book, I, I'm still, you know, somewhat unresolved about what it means in the Lumbee case, um, because without federal recognition, it's very difficult to exercise sovereignty over a territory. For example, though you can't exercise sovereignty in other ways, what exactly does make us a nation? You know, it's the question of sovereignty is kind of revolved around an, a seemingly assumed idea about nationhood that and doesn't really apply to the Lumbees. So, but that's, that mean we're not sovereign. I mean, I know a lot of attorneys and a lot of Lumbee people who would say, no, of course we're sovereign. We are in a community that pre-exists the formation of the United States. And we've never given up any of our sovereignty in a treaty. Um... And so we have retained all that sovereignty and are therefore should be acting as a sovereign nation would act. But, of course, that's made difficult, right, in the light of the federal government's own definitions and colonial policies about who's an Indian and who's not. Mm-hmm. So the, the question of nation is kind of still up in the air in a sense. But we can say for sure that, you know, Lumbees have never really struggled with their identity. They've struggled with sovereignty. They've struggled with the right to express that identity without interference, either from white supremacists in the South or from federal definitions of Indianness. Um, And I think that's probably, if we we had to come to some kind of conclusion about it, that would be where Lumbee Nationhood gets expressed, Mm. um, is in that retention of a firm sense of identity despite... um, the outsiders' you know misapprehensions
0: i want to, um, I want to jump back a bit um, and talk talk some about the the Lowry war um, mm-hmm. because i don 't think that uh, w- well I think the the, the uh, common perception is that after the Civil War, the only uh, Indian resistance that uh, exhibited itself in, in militantly the only martial resistance existed out west and you have in the introduction. Um, and, and throughout the story, you sometimes refer back to it, this example of Henry Berry Lowry's gang um, fighting the forces of white supremacy in North Carolina before the sort of vice of Jim Crow fully closed. And you and you read that um, the end of the Lowry War was for Robeson County Indians, their wounded knee. And I was hoping you could introduce us a little bit to that war and, and what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, um, well, it's... The the Lowry War emerged um, at the end of the Civil War, basically. It kind of began um, as a sort of feud in a way between local whites who are members of the Confederate Home Guard. The Home Guard is kind of the militia that um, – made up usually of men who bought their way out of military service or were otherwise ineligible to fight in the Confederacy. So they served in the Home Guard, and one of the Home Guard's jobs was to conscript Indians to build Fort Fisher in Wilmington, North Carolina, which at that time was really a cesspool of disease. It was um, the place where you didn't want to go, much less have to work and much less less work against your own will. Lumbees were not allowed to carry weapons, um, so the, the Confederacy wasn't anxious to recruit us but um, they w- definitely wanted to make us slaves in a sense. That's how people at the time thought of it, make us slaves to build this fort. Um, and the Lowry family were among the early resistors of this kind of conscription, and it began a real kind of negative relationship or Intensified a negative relationship between some members of the Home Guard and the Lowry family. Eventually, it led to the execution of two men, Alan Lowry and his son William. William Lowry. Uh, they were accused of theft, but there was very little evidence that anything had actually been stolen. What they were really guilty of was sympathizing with the Union, and for you know, effectively resisting the Home Guards efforts to enslave them to go build Fort Fisher. Um, so after the execution of Allen and William Lowry by this lynch mob, uh, otherwise known as the Home Guard, their son, Allen's other son, Henry Barry Lowry, uh, sort of forms a community, a small gang of his of his relatives. His, some, of, some are his brothers, some are, are his cousins, and some are his, his wife's brothers, as well as several... Uh, Freed African Americans, freedmen, and one or two uh, white individuals all come together to begin avenging the death of the deaths of Allen and William Lowry. And while it, you know they knew they were not going to get any kind of justice through the court system, so this was the only way they felt that they could um, deal with this problem, this horrendous crime that had been committed against their family. And um, what's partly interesting about Henry Barry Lowry, just as a kind of character, is that, you know, he was not a rash person. He never killed out of um, – uh, impulsively. He was someone who exercised great deliberation in his dealings, and I think that he, he and his brothers and other relatives – carefully thought out kind of how they were going to go about dealing with this fundamentally fundamental problem of justice and lack of it um so people talk about it sometimes as this kind of war of vengeance but it quickly became more than that as the republicans and the democrats um entered into this contest for power in north carolina after the civil war was over um Indians were voting Republican pretty solidly rather than Democrat, and a lot of other whites and blacks were voting Republican instead of Democrat in the post-Civil War South, or post-Civil War North Carolina anyway. And um, Democrats were constantly at a loss about how to win elections because they had a very slim majority, if any majority at all, and Henry Barry Lowry became a real lightning rod in that fight because he was fighting Democrats. He didn't kill Republicans. It was Democrats who were part of the lynch mob that um, killed his father and brother, not Republicans. So he wasn't, you know, indiscriminately punishing people. It requires a kind of political overtone that um, was really important for Democratic and Republican politics in the South. And, you know, I think unintentionally, I mean, Henry Berry would not have anticipated this, I don't believe, but it unintentionally led to the conservative Democrat takeover of North Carolina because Lowry's actions divided the Republican Party um, sufficiently so that it was difficult for them to maintain hold of of a voter base. Some people really sympathized with what Lowry was trying to do and thought he was in the right. And others said, no, we can't use these kinds of violent tactics and we need to go catch him and need to, you know, need to deploy all our resources to get him. Well, meanwhile, he was never caught, you know, and, and um, disappeared effectively in 1872 with about a $40,000 bounty on his head. Um, but his other – some of the other gang members were caught and eventually executed either by bounty hunters and one of them by the state of North Carolina – Um, But it just became a a real kind of political problem for the Republicans and divided their voter base, and ultimately the Democrats were able to be victorious. But it was still many years um, before that, that took place, and the Henry Barry Lowry War directly connects to some of the political violence around 1900 that disenfranchised African Americans. That was the Democrats basically kind of last stand again to use the Custer or, or Indian War metaphor. Um, that you know the Democrats really were working working hard on keeping anybody from voting who wouldn't vote for them. And in 1900, they succeeded through this profound degree of political violence um, directed at African-Americans, particularly. And Lumbee's were sufficiently intimidated to vote the Democratic platform as well. Um, the Lowry War, when it ended after Henry Berry's disappearance in 1872, um, it was it reduced our power. You know, one of those sources of our power was violence um, because... Whites in the county knew that if they were to um, offend Henry Barry Lowry in some way, that they would be punished, and he sent that message very strongly. So that was one of our sources of power. Another source of power we had was our attachments to place and kinship. And the Civil War itself was so devastating, um, and the subsequent years of kind of economic transformation, where many of us lost land and became sharecroppers, uh, reduced the degree of economic autonomy we had as well, economic and social autonomy we had as well. So that's the comparison between Wounded Knee and and the Lowry War to me is based on the fact that. Um, our autonomy was reduced um, and weakened to a degree in the same way that it was for the Lakota after Wounded Knee, but it didn't mean the death of our nation. And I think I wanted to draw on that example because so many people look at not 1890 as kind of the end of Indians in the United States, or they look at 1890 certainly as the closing of the frontier. And um, Wounded Knee is the, the signal event that closed that frontier, kind of signaled the the complete victory of the United States. And the point I wanted to make was that it wasn't a complete victory on the part of the United States that Indian people, both the Lumbees, the Lakota, and, and everywhere else, continued to survive and continued to adapt and to do different things so that their children would have better opportunities. Um, and... That the, you know, whatever damage the United States had done, it was not sufficient to completely destroy us as a people.
0: And moving into this, um, into the Jim Crow period, once the Democrats and um, white supremacist for- forces uh, have a firm grasp on power in North Carolina, um, we find in Robeson County a-, a threefold separation: different facilities for whites, blacks, and Indians. And I was particularly fascinated by the story of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad agent in Red Springs who sold tickets to Indians who sat in white waiting rooms and rode coach class with whites, much to the chagrin of Pembroke's mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to, to just sort of get into how Indians fit into what's usually understood as a, a bifurcated racial scheme in the Jim Crow South and how it played out in Robeson County.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny. The I think what Indian history shows you about this period is that segregation was – Honored in the breach more than in the observance <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that example of the railroad train station manager is is a good is a good example of that i mean his, the the outrage of the Pembroke mayor has to do with the fact that Pembroke was dominated by Indians and Pembroke was trying to build its own railroad station that had three separate waiting rooms and Indians didn't see any need for three separate waiting rooms they were perfectly as good as as whites or as anyone else, and, you know, if you had to have separate waiting rooms, then, you know, why separate Indians? But the Pembroke mayor, of course, was determined that whites should not have to sit with Indians in a waiting room. Um, And it, it was interesting that in Red Springs, it didn't really bother the guy, you know, he said, it's funny, but it seems funny, <laughs> I think was his, was what he said in the document. Seems funny, but that's how we do it. Um, and it sort of demonstrates a, a good concrete, a concrete example of how Jim Crow, not just for Indians, but for everybody, was a very malleable system. Um, it was not based particularly on hard and fast ideologies um, or practices that these ideologies and practices could be shifted around to suit the political or economic prerogatives of particular people, and especially powerful people. Um, and it's it's kind of studying Indian history in this time period helps you see that segregation was a fiction, that it was not based on some kind of biological or um, essential difference between whites and blacks, but that it was an economic System designed to disenfranchise one group at, and benefit another group. Um, Indians, in some cases, yeah, were you know treated as whites. In World War II, we often enlisted with white units and and uh, participated in the most elite units of the military. Um, In other cases, veterans would come home from World War II and not be allowed in the door at a white restaurant or have to sit in the balcony at a movie theater um, because they couldn't sit downstairs. And this is, you know, began the civil rights movement like it did for African Americans, this World War II experience. But for Lumbee's, it also goes back further. And the kind of malleable ways in which whites would shift ideas around segregation Um, to accommodate us. They were partly doing that in order to maintain, secure our votes for the Democratic Party, because we were not disenfranchised along with African Americans in 1900. The uh, Democrats expected us to vote with them. And in return for our votes, they assured that we would have separate schools. And those schools were a key institution to educate Indian kids. Uh, We've seen education as, you know, not only the key to a better life, but the key to maintaining identity as Indians. um, Because it's the kind of institution that keeps people together and keeps uh, values transmitted over the generations in a very kind of concrete way. So that's what we were promised in exchange for supporting the Democrats. Um, But schools was one of the only Schools um, was one of the only formal ways, I think, in which Indians were completely segregated from whites and blacks. You had some examples in the Lumberton area, for example, the county seat, which is the biggest town in the county, of um, water fountains for Indians, whites and blacks, restrooms for Indians, whites and blacks, Um, you know – Other types of facilities, like I said, the movie theater, the downstairs was for whites. The upstairs was divided between Indians and blacks. There was basically a wooden partition in the upstairs part of the theater to separate those two groups. And um, it sounds ludicrous, but Indians were demanding separate facilities in that context. But in other counties, in other parts of the county, they didn't need or demand separate facilities. Pembroke, for example... Was essentially an Indian-run town through much of this time period, so you didn't have the same kind of segregation. Whites and Indians in Pembroke and Blacks sat together, and that's you know 12 miles down the road from Lumberton. So it was a you know very segregation itself is just a very malleable um, construct that has really nothing to do with what we've thought it what we thought it had to do with. We thought it had to do with. Um, you know the despising of a particular race, and it it that was the justification for it. But the process of it um, was you know not about that at all.
0: Did you ever find instances of uh, strategic alliances between Indians and blacks, or was the was the relationship at least in the height of the Jim Crow area uh, uh, era uh, more about? Um, the the contest for a better place uh, in relationship to whites, or or to maintain uh, Indian autonomy.
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, during the height of Jim Crow, there's a few examples, not many, but a few examples of Indians and blacks Indians and blacks coming together to achieve a certain goal. So one one thing that comes to mind is the fight to be included on juries in the late 1930s. Um, it appears from the documentary record, although I haven't found a, a single you know, petition or something that's signed by both Indian and black individuals, but the newspaper reports and so forth indicate that Indians and blacks were combining their forces to, um, inc- to argue for inclusion on juries in criminal cases in the county. So um, particularly, of course, juries where the defendants are Indian or black. Um and that's just a constitutional right, you know, due process and, and Indians knew Indians and blacks both knew that they had deserved that. But the process, you know, whites had just routinely customarily excluded them. Um other than that example of of um you know, arguing for due process though, you don't have a lot of examples of collaboration between political collaboration between Indians and blacks in this period. And it's partly because why, um, whites have kind of developed a sort of triangulated relationship uh, with Indians and blacks. It's not so much a hierarchy as blacks at the bottom, Indians in the middle, and whites at the top. It's more that whites are the top of the triangle, and Indians and blacks are the two corners of the base of the triangle, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, And so there's some competition between Indians and blacks for resources, and whites are encouraging that competition. But on the other hand, you have Indians pursuing avenues toward independence and autonomy that are totally outside the white power structure in Robeson County. You know, they're going to the federal government for help, Um, and that introduces a completely different dynamic that that African Americans didn't have access to. at the same time african-americans had a lot more access to assistance from the state for example in education or assistance from outside uh, philanthropists in education but um... indians didn't have any of that kind of assistance so there's you know it's a lot of variation in terms of group relations that i think made it pretty difficult for indians and african-americans to come together on a sustained basis uh... certain causes certain campaigns that obviously benefited both groups. Um, they they worked together on, and certainly that was the case in the later period after my book ends in 1956. Mm-hmm. But in the later period after, during the 1960s and 70s, there was much more collaboration between Indians and Blacks. But again, it wasn't a permanent kind of alliance. For the most part, it was strategic around particular issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know the reason for that strat- for that strategic approach is because everyone at the time knew that there wasn't a strict hierarchy, that that your position in the hierarchy could change at any given moment, depending on what the issue was. Um, Although historians and his sociologists at the time seemed to have seen it as a kind of racial hierarchy where Indians got more advantages than than African Americans did, it's not ultimately what's borne out by the evidence, say in school records or... um, no, particularly in education is where this is a big issue, but also in terms of political um, treatment at, at in, in the court system and, and other other venues. I
0: want to talk a bit about the um, the class formations that sh- emerged in Robeson County uh, in, during the Jim Crow era. Era, you had, for instance, a huge number of Indian sharecroppers, which you discuss as well as a, an emerging middle class and an elite, including the, the Fourth Street power structure, which you discuss. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how um, class status within the Indian community in North Carolina um, influenced uh, individuals' relationships to um, the goals of whether it be recognition or autonomy or other of the, the community-wide projects in, the, you know, in, the, in, the, in Robeson County.
1: Well, that's that's a good question. I mean, class was certainly significant, and the way I describe it in the book is a difference between town Indians and rural Indians, essentially. Um, town Indians were folks who were more likely to have professional occupations in addition to being farmers. There would be teachers or preachers often or business owners, um, but they farmed at the same time. Rural Indians were folks who who mainly farmed. Either they owned their own land or they sharecropped. And just that economic difference gave each a kind of uh, agenda that was somewhat different than the other. But you also had um, different approaches towards relating to the white community and to the federal government um, from each of these two groups. And again, what I saw with the Lumbee community was not so much that there's a hierarchy between town and rural Indians, although there may have been in the minds of whites. You know, town Indians were better, um, more more sort of progressive or, or more uh, acceptable um, than rural Indians, but I think within the Indian community, it was an acknowledged it was an acknowledged difference that that each group was was kind of um engaged in a in its own kind of contest for supremacy over the other group you know it was an important part of our identity formation um because it it demonstrated how political and socioeconomic divisions contribute towards these layers that I was discussing earlier, mm-hmm. you know towards the discussion of race and the discussion of tribe and the discussion of nation um, these these dynamics of class are intersect with all of those things, and we have to. I found myself not being able to ignore taking that into account. You know, it'd be real easy to say, Well, all the Lumbies were poor and so mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they all manifested this certain political attitude, but the way it broke down was, you know, people of one particular political persuasion generally had a kind of socioeconomic status that was different than people of a different political persuasion. Um, and so I I couldn't ignore that. And the way it broke down though was not entirely by say standard of living. Um, it was it was more by geography, town versus rural. So I'm not sure what what that says about class as a construct, but um, it doesn't exactly play out in the kind of in the way it's been discussed. I think in other parts of American history. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to talk a bit now about um the federal recognition process um and you mentioned it earlier uh in the interview um but i want to begin by just asking you about um the the first uh attempt in in 1912 uh to secure recognition as uh cherokee indians Mm -hmm. um and i I was actually curious um, a bit about that process but also if there was dialogue and what what the response was for instance, from the Eastern Band of Cherokees in North Carolina or even the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma uh, to that particular effort at recognition
1: right that's a that's a good question and it's unfortunately um, a story that we're not we don't have total access to the documentary record is not completely clear um, but we do know that Cherokee seems to have been a name that the state of North Carolina decided upon. Um, it's, it's difficult to determine which group of Indians that the idea for that name came from, but we can see evidence that it emerged from a white politician, Angus McQueen, who went on to become governor of North Carolina and was from Robinson County, that he was convinced that our ancestry was Cherokee. And so part of that may have been a desire to, again, um, maintain Indian support for his voting support for his agenda by affiliating us with a group that was universally recognized as authentically Indian, right? When you think Cherokee, you think Indian. (laughs) Um, And that was certainly the attitude, I guess, in the 19-teens and 1920s. Um, But, It was indeed more complicated than that, and the Eastern Band Cherokees were present at one of the hearings at the state capitol in Raleigh to oppose uh, this change in in our recognized name. And um, it was explained by um, a Robeson County Indian to a newspaper reporter that he didn't think that they wanted – he didn't think that the Eastern Band Cherokees wanted us to have any of their rocky ground out there, I think was the way he put it. Um, well, in fact, probably what the Cherokees were more interested in protecting was their vast timber holdings, which had never been allotted by the United States and were under tribal control. And it was I could see it be a very dangerous precedent from their perspective to allow a group a kind of entree, even if in name only, an entree to access some of the tribal resources that they had really fought hard to protect against federal encroachment, um, and the the um, purpose of the of the Eastern Band opposition was, you know, possibly rooted in, in economics, the same way it's rooted in economics today—a contest over the possibility and the potential of gaming, essentially—and um, so. There's lots of different ways to explain it. You can also, of course, say that there's no cultural affiliation between Robinson County Indians and Eastern Band Cherokees. And the historical record pretty much supports that, that contention, although there are little snatches of evidence here and there that members of our community communicated with each other, if not being actively related in some way, kinship-wise. Um, But that doesn't mean we're the same people, and that doesn't mean we should have have had the same name. But for whatever strategic political reasons, the state determined that that was the the best name for us. And our our leadership at the time was inclined to go along with whatever the state wanted because they were trying to protect Indian schools Mm -hmm. um, and the existence of Indian schools. And it created, you know, a, a mess, not so much with the Eastern Band Cherokees, but with the federal government later on, when we tried to get recognition from the federal government, not as Cherokees, but as Suwan Indians, which was a name that the BIA suggested uh, we adopt. And again, we the, the significance of tribal names is not enormous to us, but matters, the names that matter to us are family names and place names, but we recognize how they are tremendous significance to outsiders. So, if we're going to achieve our goals, which, of course, at that time was federal recognition, then if this name is important to the BIA or important to the state legislature in North Carolina, you know, some of our leadership is saying, "Let's go with it." Other leaders are saying, "No way! You know, <laughs> we can't bow down to this." But it's, you know, it's it's very complicated, and it ultimately, unfortunately, um, the federal government doesn't do the right thing. And so we are, you know, left again in the 1950s needing a very different kind of name. And the people who led the charge to um, achieve recognition under a different appellation were the ones who ultimately had to back out of the process and didn't receive recognition for that process Mm. for their contribution. So um, it's, it's sort of... In a way, it's got a sad ending, I think, (laughs) Um, because in 1956, the federal government recognizes us as Lumbee Indians and then says we're not entitled to any benefits or services normally accorded to recognized tribes. Mm. So when people say the Lumbees aren't federally recognized, technically, that's not true. We are federally recognized. The federal government has always said that these are Indian people, Um, but the federal government has also, at the same time, always said you're not eligible for services. Mm for this or that other reason. Um and we I think as in, as Lumbees have kinda of become tired of how this discourse gets played out in the media um around our the legitimacy of our identity or our struggle for identity. You know, we're not the ones who are struggling. The federal government is struggling to figure out how to deal with this fairly when it really ought not to be a struggle for them at all. You know, they just ought to do the right thing.
0: How did it change? How did the relationship with the federal government change under the tenure of John Collier, who obviously uh, brought a very different paradigm in a lot of ways to uh, the office of uh, Indian Affairs? Uh, what was the relationship with Collier?
1: Right. Well, uh, that's the point at which tribe becomes this kind of interesting uh, paradigm or or um, layer of identity for for Indians. The John Collier was. Very intent on restoring some degree of self determination to Indian communities, um, and he therefore worked with the Lumbees. Um, I'm sorry, Andrew. I just have to pause here for a second. That's quite all right. I just realized we're kind of over time or over what I was thinking. So, okay, um, but I can I can finish answering the question. I just have to. Um, run to another meeting here in a sure, second. Sure, sure. If you, if you don't
0: mind, um, we, in fact, why don't we step back from the Collier question because okay. what I can do is I can um, cut from the end of the last question uh-huh. and I can just kind of get to the end of the interview and ask, um, I was just going to, well, the, the two things I was remaining to ask you about, I was going to um, ask you to tell the story about your father with the unionization struggle and things like that, but I don't, okay. I don't need to get into that. Um, how about I just end with... Um, we can talk a bit about the the story of the clan rally in nineteen fifty eight mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. okay and then we
1: yeah, can. yeah that's fine um so you know one of the ways in which this sort of national or tribal well national i think identity asserts itself is when in nineteen fifty eight um can I just stop you really quickly because yeah, uh-huh.
0: let me let me uh ask the question because that oh, way, sorry it'll be easier to um to yeah, it, you know, when I to piece edit it later mm-hmm. okay great okay, so um There's obviously so much more to discuss here, which I think is obviously a a great incentive for listeners to pick up a copy of this work. Um, But as we get to the end of our interview, I'm hoping you could tell us uh, about the story in 1958, the KKK rally in Robeson County and the Indian response. And it's a remarkable story.
1: Yeah, so in 1958 the the Ku Klux Klan um decides that it's going to quote put Indians in their place. <laughs> they want to end race mixing, which, you know, race mixing had been happening in the South for hundreds of years. Uh, The Ku Klux Klan didn't particularly seem to bat an eye. Uh, I don't think their problem was with race mixing. I think their problem was with the increasing power and authority of Indian people um, under what they were trying to maintain as a a white supremacist regime. Um, But they burned two crosses on the lawns of an Indian family that had moved into a white neighborhood, and on the, the lawn of an Indian woman who had been dating a white man um, in the weeks, early weeks of January 1958. And then the leader of this particular group, clan group, uh, a man named James Catfish Cole, um, decided to hold a rally. And invite, you know, Klan members from Robinson County as well as the surrounding areas in North and South Carolina to um, intimidate Indians and kind of rally his followers to the cause of racial segregation, which Indians seem to violate in every respect. Um, Well... Only about 50 people showed up to his rally, (laughs) and most of them were from South Carolina. The Robinson County clan members knew better, I think, than to come um, because once word got out that Catfish Cole had planned this meeting, the response of Indians was to say, well, we're not going to let him come to Pembroke. Let's go meet him where he's at, right? In other words, we're not going to let him come to our territory. We're not going to let him invade our space. We're going to go fight him on his ground. And he had very he had a lot of difficulty securing a location for the rally uh, because local fi- local folks knew that this was they had a fight on their hands. But he finally did uh, secure one at a place called Hayes Pond, near Maxton, North Carolina, a little town that's on the edge of Robeson County, at the edge of Robeson and Scotland counties. And um, when when Catfish calls fifty followers, men, women, and children showed up in this field at Hayes Pond, they were quickly surrounded by 500 Indians, um, about 50 of whom were women and the the rest of whom were men. Um, And you quickly, as Catfish Cole began to speak, um, he was surrounded by Indians carrying guns. And the the man that shot... The light bulb, which was next to Cole as he was speaking, was a veteran, a uh, World War II veteran named Sanford Locklear. And then another man, uh, Sanford Locklear's brother-in-law, I believe, basically took Catfish Cole's own gun out of his hands, wrestled it away from him. And that confrontation sparked um, shots firing in all directions. Um, it was extremely chaotic from what I've heard from people who were there. And there were the, the press was there because they had heard that this might be a big story, and so like one of the you know members of the community who was there describes you know these, all the flashes of guns, the flashes of of uh, light bulbs from cameras, and he saw he looked out and he saw people lying down, lying on the ground. and He was convinced that there were forty or fifty people that were dead after the shooting was over, you know. But then he said everybody got up and started leaving. And miraculously, it turned out no one was seriously injured Um, in the process. Indians were firing into the air. Catfish Cole himself fled to the swamps and didn't come out for three days. His wife, Carolyn, was so frightened that she drove her car into a ditch. And Lumbee men actually helped pull her out (laughs) of the ditch. Um, And Catfish Cole was then tried... For um, inciting a riot, Catfish Colin and another Klan leader were tried for inciting a riot and found guilty. Um, and the Klan has never held another r- rally in Robertson County since then, nor have they tried to, um, because you know they know what would happen. <laughs> um, and it was it was a, it was a moment of us, I think, articulating our identity as a sovereign people, despite the ambiguous recognition we had received two years earlier from the federal government, that we didn't need, um, benefits and services to act collectively as a, as a nation and to assert our right to be unmolested by white supremacists who, you know, were abusing us, abusing our families and our, our people. So, um, it's a, you know it was a very poignant moment. It was a very kind of dramatic moment, and one that has been told many, many, many times in the community. It's one of our kind of most important stories, along with Henry Barry Lowry and some of our other other historical figures.
0: I was about to say. I guess it shows that the the spirit of Henry Barry Lowry is not so far gone after mm, all.
1: Definitely not. <laughs> He's still around. Yeah, absolutely. You know?
0: Well, we've been speaking uh, with Professor Melinda Maynor-Lowry of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, about her excellent new book, Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: I'm so happy. Thank you for having me.
0: Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Melinda Maynor-Lowry, author of Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South, Race, Identity, and the Making of a Nation, from the University of North Carolina Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com or track us down on our Facebook page where you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks.